And we talked last week about uh, ethical practices, precept practice, um, right speech, right action, right livelihood. We talked about those as uh, central practices for the path. Um, we talked about restraining those impulses which arise in our, in our being um, that tend to make things worse, that we can recognize as making things worse, learning to restrain that. And um, we talked a little bit about um, some stages of learning, where we begin not, not, not even knowing that we need to learn, and then at the end being able to unconsciously, automatically, spontaneously behave in, um, with compassion and friendliness to our experience. This week I want to talk a little bit about uh, the other, the other part of the Dharma, there are, two, there are two wings to the Dharma traditionally, compassion and wisdom. And the heart side is encompassed uh, by, by the sila practices. The wisdom side is uh, often perceived as a bit heady and conceptual and intellectual. And, um, but the Buddha identified very clearly that the source of our dissatisfaction, he located it in our ignorance of, of uh, how things are. And so the cultivation of right view becomes really important um, because at, you know, at the, at the, at the, in the end, the unsatisfactoriness of our life is brought about by a kind of a primal misunderstanding, a kind of confusion. I want to talk a little bit about, about that. I've been reading um, some material by a professor at Smith College named Jay Garfield. First name is J-A-Y. Really quite excellent. He's not writing from the standpoint of a practitioner, but as a st from the standpoint of a scholar. And he is particularly focused on <clears throat> um, the works of the Madhyamaka school and uh, Nagarjuna. But I've, I've been working with, his, with, with a couple of his books and I came across a sentence that just has lit me up and is, I've been working with it now for, for a number of weeks. And the sentence is, the cessation, I'll, I'll read it, I'll say it a couple times, the cessation of self-grasping, which is inextricably bound up with the cessation of reification, is experienced in ethical engagement. The experience of self-grasping, which is inextricably bound up with the cessation of reification, is experienced in ethical engagement. I'm going to talk a little bit about those pieces because this is, this, to me, is uh, really a deep insight. He's suggesting that sila, or ethical practice without insight is just rule following. And insight without ethical restraint is negligent, at least. The two are ins inseparable. And so understanding, having a, a concept of the way in which delusion works in our lives becomes important. It may not be impossible in the end 
to evade delusion, but we can become aware of our, of the nature of the, those those delusions. So I want to talk a little bit about um, reification, which um, is a Western philosophical term. It actually it actually parallels the uh, conventional truth, and we'll talk a little bit about the two truths that Nagarjuna identified and that are taught in, in, in uh, uh, Buddhism. The idea here is that we have concepts about the world which we assume are real in the world, abstract concepts. So, for example, there was an auto accident. It's a, it's a noun, an accident, a thing. But actually that noun describes a sequence of events, a whole bunch of events, probably uncountable if you really get down to small details, that unfold over a period of time. It's not a thing. And yet we think of it as a thing, refer to it as a thing, we've got to deal with this accident, I've got to take care of the problem with my accident. And it's a way of, it's a way of projecting reality of abstract concepts. So the self, for example, is the same kind of a thing. You know, the, the self, our, our self is what has unfolded over the course of our lives, the experience we've had, the conditions that have arisen. It's not a thing. It's, although the word self is a noun, um, it's a, a word that designates a whole range of experience. The Buddha said there were, he says, let me tell you about what, everything there is in the world, everything. Let me tell you about everything. It's a, a, a piece of scripture called the Saba Sutta, Saba All, everything, all. He says you've got colors and shapes, you've got sounds, you've got tactile sensations, tastes and smells, and mind events, thoughts. Pretty much. Have you, anybody got anything else? It sounds silly, but you know, maybe. I mean, there are people who have uh, extra taste buds or something, right? Or no, there is a subset of women who have a fourth cone in their eye, so they actually see colors more... Um, well, I don't know. Because <laughs> I only have three. <laughs> but they certainly see a different... They have a different experience. So the idea is that the ideas that we have about things, those are the thoughts, the mental constructs. You know, there's the, the map is not the territory. Is, is, uh, is, uh, uh, the maps, the ideas we have about things are not the same as the things that we have ideas about. And we sort of know that, but we still act as if, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, I think, in a way, that's, that's how the, um, the organism works. The brain, 
you know, we concretize things, we make things into things so we can deal with them, so that we can be more successful uh, as survivors. We can, you know, we, we observe regularities, patterns of uh, events, and we generalize from them, and we make, we, we're clever critters, you know? We, we, I talked about tanha last week and the types of tanha, the, the underlying proclivity, the, the disposition towards pleasant experience. Not any particular pleasant experience, but we want our experience pleasant. We want to survive, and we have ambition for survival and becoming, and we want to get rid of threats. And if you look at the history of humans on the planet, what have we done? Well, we've lengthened our lifespan, and we've made things more comfortable, and we've obliterated some threats. We act out of our, out of the uh, motivations that are that are. So I think reification is nature's way in a, in effect. It comes with the territory. Selfing and thingifying yeah. are the ways in which the brain makes us really skillful survivors. But we mistake the map for the territory. We depend on our maps for navigating, our understanding for navigating. The first element of the Buddha's Eightfold Path is right view. It's the understanding that enables us to live without making things worse, without adding to the discontent, to the suffering in the world. And the Buddha said, sometimes he said, if you understand dependent origination, you understand the Dharma. Dependent origination is the Buddha's teaching that all experience is conditioned by all experience. You know, we think of our, if, when we think of ourselves as a thing, as a being, even as an entity, think of ourselves as separate. But we aren't, we aren't. even the iron in our blood was formed in a supernova. It's the only place in the universe we know that iron forms, so our very physical being comes from, Carl Sagan called it star stuff. You know, we are conditioned by the Big Bang. You know, this, this here is the cutting edge of the Big Bang. You know. so the, Buddha, the notion of dependent origination, all things are dependent on all things. There is nothing that is independent that you can find. We, we can think about things that are independent. Plato did. Plato thought he had this idea, and actually we've got a lot of Plato embedded in us. We, you know, he had this theory that there was this transcendent realm of forms where things were real. Things that are permanent are real. Things that are impermanent reflections of the real. In, in Indian philosophy, too, Brahman is real and then this is all Maya. But the Buddha said, gee, take a look around. Can, is there anything that can be found that has any essence? 
By essence, we mean some quality that is inherent, that's not dependent. And the notion that there is essence is the notion of uh, about reification, that's, that the map is the territory. So I think of it often as like a mirage. I like the metaphor of a mirage. You have two people in the desert. One person sees the mirage, says, look it, there's water there. The other person knows that there is a mirage, but also sees it. Sees the mirage, but knows it's a mirage. And then in this metaphor, there's also someone who wears polarizing glasses and doesn't see the mirage at all. So we'll talk about who that person is <laughs> in a little bit. But the idea, if you, we have a notion of war, War is a concept, it's an idea. If you actually go and look closely at it, you know, you can see manifestations of it, but we don't see it. You know, so it, the word war, the concept of war is a mirage in the same way that the mirage of water is. It exists. We know it's there, we can see it, we can talk about it, we can organize our lives around it. But when we get close, it's not just what we think. It, it's not as it presents itself. So we abstract, and then we impute reality to that abstraction. And, th and that process helps us. It helps us be skillful. It helps us be survive, you know, survive, but it doesn't necessarily help us overcome suffering because it creates the sense, the expectation there's a thing out there to grasp. I think of desire functioning sort of like a moth and, and the flame. You know, the object of desire is so compelling to the moth that it flies right into it. The moth doesn't see its own compulsion to fly into the flame. Right. And when we are lost in desire, thinking of how things should be, how things should be, I should have a dove bar. That's how things should be. I, sh I mean, we don't have to be grandiose about this. You know, how should things, the light should be on. You know, somebody shouldn't have left that on the floor. I shouldn't have, you know. So when we practice, when we do our meditation practice, we metaphorically sort of take ourselves offline and observe the process of wanting. And we can watch it in our body, we can feel it, listen to the stories. The other side of that is to observe the nature of the bait. Buddhadasa called it bait, the world's bait. It dangles out there that we aim at. <coughs> to sort of deconstruct that and not fall for, you know, we think that what has, what we want, the reason why we care is because when we want something, we're grasping for 
an essence of some kind, something we need, something we want, something that will fill us. So we think essence inheres in an object. So we think, what's the essence of sugar? It's sweet. But sweet isn't in the sugar. Sweet is an experience in our mouth when the sugar hits our mouth. So it's a particular experience. And it's not, it's not some quality that's permanent. If you burn the sugar, then it becomes, you're left with carbon and you're not so much sweet. So the sweet is dependent on the condition, well, certainly of your sense organs. So the idea is to become more familiar with the process of self-grasping and reification. Self-grasping both senses. The grasping of self. The way we grasp the world. Greed, wanting, and aversion, ill will, not wanting. But pulling and pushing. <coughs> the cessation of that, Garfield is, is saying, is tied to the cessation of reification and that it's experienced in our ethical engagement. So Nagarjuna was a, was a, uh, a monk around the end of the first century of the Common Era who is considered second only to the Buddha in terms of the power of his understanding and thinking. And he sort of is on the cusp between the, the Theravadan tradition and the Mahayana tradition. And he, t he took the Buddhist teachings about anatta, or emptiness, and articulated them um, in a way that, um, uh, well, he, talk, he, he taught the two truths. Many of you may be familiar with the two truths, or the two, ultimate truth and relative truth. Ultimate reality, relative reality. <coughs> conventional reality, ultimate reality. So these two truths. The conventional world is the world that we live in. Conventional world is um, the conventional map of the world that we uh, use to navigate, that we use to get around, to understand. Um, and we have, you know, we do that as a natural process. What is conventional? Well, this is a shirt, right? or camisa. Right? It's a conventional use of language. It's either one or the other. Well, what is it? Is it uh, five-eighths of a mile, or is it a kilometer? Which is it, really? Come on, really. <laughs> what is it? We've got... We can fight over. I mean, some of these things are fight. Is it a fetus or a baby? Them's fighting words. So, you know, any any designation um, is conventional from the Garjana standpoint. Um, You know, we can see we can see it in the world. Does Taiwan belong to China or is it independent? 
Does Kashmir belong to India, or is it in the, is, does it belong to Pakistan? What is the reality here? Well, the reality is we're, we're fighting over our dreams, our dreams of the way things are, our reified understanding, identities. Now, self becomes a reified concept. Self is a conventional designation. And this is all opposed to what is called ultimate reality or ultimate truth. And that's pretty tricky. Ultimate truth? What would ultimate truth be? Well, I guess the idea is that ultimate truth is a truth that is independent of our understanding, that exists separate from us, is permanent, is always I'm not sure what it is because the word, the phrase ultimate truth is a conventional phrase. <coughs> so in a sense, even the concept of ultimate truth occurs within our conventional understanding. I'm taking this apart, it may seem like, why? <laughs> But the idea is to, is to help us see the nature of the bait that lures us, along with the intentions that drive us, so to, to deconstruct the flame as well as the... So Nagarjuna has said that, well, he talked about reification, but he talked about it as emptiness. Now he would say that any concept, let's say this is a pen, he would say the concept of this as a pen is a conventional concept. Ultimately, it's empty of anything pen, because the molecules that are in this pen weren't in this configuration certainly 20 years ago, and who knows how long it's going to be. They may not, this may not be biodegradable. So, but, you know, at some point it's not going to look like this anymore. So a thing is a snapshot moment, a, a concept that's, that's empty of essence, empty of anything permanent empty of any quality. So we, we talk about a thing having characteristics. And so our language tricks us into thinking about things and qualities of things. The notion of emptiness doesn't mean non-existent. To say that this pen is empty of essence is all we're saying. It's not permanent. Anything that has any essential nature is separate from everything else, stands apart, is not dependent, and will never change. Does that make sense? Because if it's, if it's dependent, then it's not, it's not permanent. It's not essential. It's not... Hmm. Emptiness is at the heart of the Buddha's notion of 
anatta, not self. Self is a reified concept, conventional concept, useful concept. So the, the ultimate truth, Nagarjuna would say, is that conventional truth is empty. And that's all there is to it. Nothing more. It's all you, it's all you can say. You can talk about ultimate truth. You can also say, there is no ultimate truth. That's the ultimate truth. Because any framing would be just conventional. So we're left with the cessation of self-grasping, which is inextricably bound to the cessation of reification. is experienced in ethical behavior. So the creation of self and other, reified object and reified self, happens all at once. It happens as the, the gesture, the action of the brain to make sense of and to coordinate and act in the world. And actually what's interesting, we talked last, last week about what neuroscience does to notions of intention. Because we, we talked about the work that Benjamin Libet did first at USF <coughs> 25 years ago, where he was able to determine that the intentions that arise in us occur about a fifth of a second before we become aware of it. Which means that when we, we see the cookie and we're we're reaching for the cookie before we know it. You know? You ever found that? What? Yeah. what? <laughs> you know. in, um, in his book, I Am Charlotte Simmons, Tom Wolfe takes us on a tour of Duke University through the eyes of, a, of Charlotte Simmons. And she goes into a neuroscience class and the professor is saying, you know, we're sort of like this pebble that's tossed across the room that becomes conscious halfway across the room and says, oh, I want to go that way. <laughs> you know. when, the, when the blood chemistry gets, blood sugar gets low, hunger happens. And we say, I'm hungry. And, and how does that show up? Watch, there's an image of food in there. <laughs> Maybe it's not a Dove bar. But if you're staring in the fridge, hunger is going to arise. Yeah. Or even a cookie on a plate will remind you that you're hungry. The two things happen independently. And one of the things that's interesting about this is we, we talk, the way we use language, saying don't identify with our desire, don't identify with... But we don't do that. We don't identify with anything. Identification happens about a fifth of a second before we become aware. So the notion of us and other is what is presented to our awareness. That's why it seems the way it is. But if we can recognize it as you know, the conjuring of our mind, we can see it as, um, you know, as the mirage and also I mean, it is a mirage, but it also is 
what we, you know, itself. It's a mirage, but we operate in terms of self. So that's when things start sounding paradoxical at that point. Um, but in the same way that we can learn to monitor our intentions, learn to become aware of our intentions arising moment by moment, but through our, our mindfulness practice, by taking ourselves offline, as it were, and watching this, what's presented, and becoming familiar with this process, we can watch the, we can watch the, the bait that forms as well. When you, when you look through a world through the lens of a reified self, you see things that you could want or not want. You, think, you see things as they relate to you. When you see things not through the lens of a reified self, we see the suffering in the world. Because usually what's happening is the wanting and not wanting is our effort to navigate away from our own dissatisfaction, to find, to find well, we want things to be permanent, don't we? We want to live forever. Or we're gonna, or die trying. <laughs> you know? We've got ambition to become something, to, to be in the future, ambition to be, to leave a lev- legacy, and to live forever. And we can't figure out how to do that? Well, we, we fantasize a heaven or multiple lives, something. The cessation of self-grasping and the cessation of reification. The cessation of suffering is experienced in ethical engagement. It sounds a little bit closer to the Dharma as we know it, but it's not so far different from seeing through the two, the the delusions of, of of reified conventional world. The cessation of suffering is experienced in compassion, in compassionate action, and in in friendly regard for the world. So we talked about, last week we talked about these four stages of learning. The first being unconscious incompetence. This is something I got from Rick Hansen. It was just a throwaway line in a talk that he was giving about the four stages of learning. So I, I and it just grabbed my attention, so I went to Wikipedia, and there it was. So, you know, it's official. And it's got a fancy name. And I can't remember what the name is, but Matrix is in the name. So that sounds official, doesn't it? So the, the first stage is in... in um, Unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. And then there's conscious incompetence, which is you've discovered you don't know. And then there's conscious competence. That's the practice stage. And then unconscious competence. So if you want to drive a car, you want to learn to drive a car, I remember wanting What's so hard about driving? People get in and they drive, you know? So I get into the... I, I still... Maybe you have the same... You can recall that first moment you pushed on the accelerator and the whole thing goes, er, you know, and I realized, oh dear, 
<laughs> I don't know how to control this thing, you know? And so, so I went from unconscious incompetence, I had no idea how to drive a car, to conscious incompetence. I've got no idea <laughs> how to drive a car. And then you learn, you know, at the, how the, the gauges work and how far you turn the wheel, and you practice conscious competence. And then, now, we just, we, we can drive, we don't even notice that we're driving. We don't notice that we're driving. Dave, David Eagleman, who's a, a neuroscientist at Baylor, has, he says, most of what's going on in our organism is going on under the hood is the metaphor he uses, that only a small portion of, our, of the organism's experience is presented to our conscious attention for dealing with. And so when you think about driving, we think, well, yeah, I know how to drive. But if you try to even imagine, he says, hold your hands out like this, like you're holding the steering wheel, and imagine you're going to change one lane to the right. You don't have to check lanes. But just, just imagine the gesture that you would do to do that. Move one lane to the right. Just go ahead and do it. And almost everybody goes like this, right? But that's going to steer you right off the road. You've turned to the right, and then you straighten it out, headed to the right. If you watch the way you, turn, you change lanes, you turn to the right, and then you turn back to the left. Watch yourself do it. Unconscious. We do it without even noticing. You know, we're just, we, you can, you know, I drove from, I, from Davis to here this morning, I didn't even notice Vacaville. <laughs> Nothing about Vacaville. <laughs> yeah, just, well, you know, it's listening, listening to NPR. It's just horrible. How can you pay attention to your surroundings when you're listening to NPR? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's the same with, with learning a sport. I think last week the example I used was tennis. How I could, you know, you watch people play tennis and they, it looks easy, but first time I tried I couldn't, I realized I didn't know how to get the ball in the court on the other side of the net. Because I either hit it, I mean, it looks, what's so hard? But then conscious incompetence, and slowly, you know, if you take lessons, you learn how to, you learn by the numbers, you practice, and then pretty soon, if you're Roger Federer, you can, you don't even, you have less than a second, the ball's coming out, you don't have a chance to think what to do, you can't, you know, it's just unconscious competence. And so it's the same with our practicing uh, with emptiness with the notion of the, of the two truths and emptiness. We start by taking the apparent world as it is. You know, this is a clock, glass of water, you know, even the abstract things, even the abstract, you know, the Iran deal, the presidential election. You know, Just take the world, the conventional world, as, as the real world. But of course, it's, it's empty. All the things in it are empty of any essential qualities 
that would make them permanent. Anything that were permanent would never change, by definition. And then, of course, how would we know if, we, if there were something permanent? Because our sense, or, sense organs, our mind, constant change in, in our perceptions. So how would we even know that we'd encountered something permanent? But the Buddha tells us, don't worry about it. All things are dependently originated. The early Abhidhammists, and I really should have checked this out, the early Abhidhammists said there were four ultimate realities. Maybe the early, the, the, the Pali philosophers before Nagarjuna, Rupa, the, the material world, the sense, sensory world was ultimately, Nibbana was an ultimate reality. Nagarjuna says, all this is dependently arisen. All this is empty of essential nature. Any assen- not that it's not existent. Empty doesn't mean doesn't exist, because here it is, right? Here we are, it's here. It just has no essence, no quality that is ultimate, no quality that's permanent. And yet, when we grasp at something, we grasp at thinking that it's, it's, we don't think of it as grasping water. You know, but it, it is, in a way. And it's not just, you know, Heraclitus said you can't step in the same river twice because the river, it's changing. Robert Rauschenberg, a painter who, was, who lived just into this century, said, you can't look at my paintings twice. But he didn't mean because the molecular structure of the paint is changing glacially, slowly for us. But he meant, you're different. You've changed. There's change everywhere. (coughs) Us, in us, outside, it's just an uninterrupted flow. Emptiness, and, and, and the real, the real kicker to this, Nagarjuna says, emptiness itself has no essence. There is no such thing as emptiness. And that is a mistake, he says, that people make. They reify emptiness. Emptiness is the emptiness out of which we all come and to which we all return. And it gets conflated with the oneness of of things. And the, the unity of the universe, the underlying reality behind all appearances are all thoughts in terms of the, the sabasutta, the, you know, they're not colors, sounds, they're thoughts. They're thoughts about things, and then we take the about and assume it's real, or act as if it's real. So the cessation of self, of selfing, leads to the cessation of grasping. And then we can see the suffering in the world, we can see the impermanence in the world, and we can respond appropriately, you know, out of an open heart, one that's not concerned with getting and pushing away the greed, hatred, which is founded in the delusion of an essential reality, you know, of, of some permanent something. We are afloat in this changing river of experience, 
And what we are capable of doing is attenuating the suffering and the dissatisfaction of ourselves and others. We can work on that. But it's pretty hard to change things, change the way things are. My gosh, we didn't even, we didn't have a say in whether we were here or not. Here we are. <laughs> Just showed up. But living in the living in a, in the world where you see the mirage, the conventional reality as conventional reality, it's not unreal. It's a kind of reality. It's it's its own kind of truth. But it leads to living in a world more the way you would be in a museum than in a shopping mall. So once we recognize the problem, we can, do, you know, the idea is to become as articulate about it as possible. And so I sort of, you know, recommend the, the, the um, scholarship as, as a conjunct to uh, the kind of meditative practice. Right intention, right understanding. Now, if we want to be able to articulate a path of practice for ourselves, you know, we need to be able to have some, you know, clarity in our vision. (laughs) 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 Yeah. See, attention is amazing, isn't it? You know, it just flits right around. It's just, you know, bringing, bringing that, that sucker under control. <laughs> so I think I was, I, I may have been talking last week about um, my, my uh, experiment with with, uh, I'm, I think of it as the Hunger Games. Did I talk about the Hunger Games last week? I've been practicing. It's a monastic practice where you don't eat afternoon. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I have seen enough disclaimers on TV to say, don't try this practice at home without consulting your physician. But <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't eat afternoon, you can become familiar with the reflexes of the body and the mind. Because about 4 o'clock, you say, this is a silly practice. <laughs> By seven o'clock, you go, "Ah, oh, I get it. Yeah, hunger. Yeah, okay." And as you find yourself staring in the refrigerator, and it's just amazing to watch because the body, when it becomes hungry, so it's it's a, a way of watching how the organism serves up our experience to ourselves, serves up ourself to ourselves. And it serves up objects of desire and aversion to ourselves. And it serves up the intention in regard to it. So I've been finding that, that long about 6 and 7 o'clock, it's, there's, there's some opportunities for some real insight. Yeah, yeah which is, I'm going to eat a bigger breakfast <laughs> tomorrow. But, it's, but in a way, it's a kind of practice like sitting at practice where you hold yourself still, and all of a sudden, what becomes visible? <sighs> thinking. You know? When you're walking around in the world, the thinking is happening. It hasn't stopped. It's just that we're, 
we're acting on it. We're acting out on it as it happens. We're reaching for that cookie even as we see it. Our foot hits the brake before we even know because somebody's cut in on us and the whole organism protects itself. It doesn't even go through the conscious circuit by the time that the foot hits the brake. Things are happening faster. And we're sort of, we're sort of a fifth of a second behind. Uh-oh, the self that's a fifth of a second behind is already a fifth. We don't identify. Identification happens. That's really been helpful for me. And the task is to step away from those impulses that make things worse, that cause suffering. And to recognize that the world's bait, Buddha Dasa used to call it bait, the world's bait is um, transitory. And there's nothing, well, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the characteristics of existence or experience, I think of it as characteristics of our experience, impermanent, incapable of providing satisfaction because they're insubstantial, empty of essence. And emptiness itself is empty. It depends on things. If there were no things, if there was no concepts of things, if there was no conventional reality, there'd be nothing to be empty. So empty itself is dependently arisen. So the two wings of the Dharma, wisdom and compassion, are tied together. The way we see things leads to the way we act out of our, you know, in the world, the way we act in the world. One of the other quotes from Garfield that I that I like uh, is uh, epistemology, or the, the study of how we know things. Epistemology is located at the foundation of morality. And it gets its point just from that location. Epistemology is important because it conditions our ethical behavior. The way we think about the world, the way we see in the world conditions are the way we behave in it. And the cessation of suffering is experienced in ethical engagement, is experienced in compassionate and friendly behavior and in the equanimity of the Brahma-viharas. So let me uh, see what you think. What's it to you? <laughs> Please. What is epistemology? Epistemology is the, th the theories of knowledge, of how we know things. How do you know what you think you know? It's just asking us to examine that a little bit. And, of course, there's a huge uh, stream of philosophy that's engaged in thinking about that stuff. So you can really get into it if you feel like it. But you only need to, it's like you can get into, you know, advanced jhana states. But all you need to know is how not to get suckered into clinging. Getting suckered into it by that fifth of a second. Yeah. Reification, could you define that? Reification is something we do. It's a pro uh, not something we do. It's something that happens. 
Um, and that something is attributing reality to an abstract concept. So we assume the map is the territory. And the map isn't the territory, but it's not different from the territory. The map itself is territory, actually. Yeah? Well, in reification, it, you said there's a reified self, but isn't there a physical self? Isn't there a concrete self? You said in, there's a reified accident, used the metaphor of the accident, but isn't there the physical collision? It, 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 there are aspects. Well, collision is an abstract notion, too. Is the collision the moment when the first molecules of the two cars touched, or is the collision what happened as the crumpling starts when the fenders, or is the collision what happens when they are thoroughly enmeshed and off the road? It's something that emerges over time. The same with a physical self. There is this body, but the body is not the same from one minute to the next, because the molecules of air we inherit, the, the chemistry is changing inside us. Um, so you say this is Maya, that this, this is the illusion? No, the, there's nothing but this. You know, the notion that there is something permanent is a delusion. Okay, because in our experience, we don't experience anything permanent. If, if I suggest that you think of an equilateral triangle, and it comes up in your mind, is that the same equilateral triangle that you thought of the last time you thought of an equilateral triangle? Or, you know, there's a tendency to be platonic and think that what's permanent is what's real and what's impermanent is not real. But the Buddha was a phenomenologist. What the reality is right in front of our faces. It's just, we are it unfolding. We're not, there's not even an it. There's just unfolding. We want something permanent, so we look for something to cling to, something true, something permanent, something that will last, so that we can be right. We like to be right. And it's good, you know, if, our, if, what we, if we like our knowledge to be true so that we don't make mistakes, that we don't... If, but if we're acting out of delusion, then the consequences of our actions are likely to not turn out the way we thought they were going to. So understanding the mirage-like quality and also being able to monitor our own responses, that's, yeah. This fifth of a second Mm -hmm. is boggling my mind a little bit. Oh, good. (laughs) So how do we have right intention? If that's a great question. So here's that's a that's a great a great question. Right intention would be classically it's described as renunciation or abandonment of tanha, of those impulses that arise towards grasping, towards making things pleasant, towards making things, towards surviving to become. It's also, it's also the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, joy, friendliness, compassion, equanimity. In terms of neuroscience, so this is how I understand this. This is not the official 
Theravadan line. We are built, the whole, we are built to navigate towards pleasant experience because that's the way we experience what's good for us, generally. Now, now, usually the way we go after making things pleasant is we try to get what we want. We have an idea of what we want, what we're going to get. If I, just, if I get that promotion, if I just find the right partner, if I just get the right medicine, if I just, if I just, you know, and then, you know, if I just, if, if I'm good. But, you know, you can um, act in the world and can't be sure that things will come out the way you want. You can let the arrow fly, a gust of wind can blow it off course. The surgeon who performed the, the procedure on John Rivers didn't do it to make her die. No. So the best intentions may not turn out. So we may struggle to get what we want, what we think will make us happy, what we think will make everybody happy. Well, lowering the Fed, you know, we, we've got all kinds of social policy ideas. They may work, may not work. What the Buddha discovered was that we add into our experience a whole bunch of unpleasantness, you know, all the craving of tanha, and it can be incredibly subtle, incredibly subtle. We add our own resistance to the way things are into the mix, and we can, we can pollute pleasant experience with wishing that we're different. You know? And some, when I say subtle, it's like... I have a dog. I've talked about my dog. Spent a lot of time with my dog. My dog was... we, we had her spayed over the uh, last weekend. And so the question is, you know, get her home. Is she going to eat? Because the first she was not interested in the food. She was still on drugs to the point of heedlessness. <laughs> but at one point I saw her, she went over to her food and she ate. So I called to my wife. I said, she's eating. My wife said, I feel better. And I thought, you know, I feel better. <laughs> there was a real subtle little thing there is my dog going to eat? Am I going to have to call the vet again? Just subtle presence in the or just there, that was relieved. So there's a relief that comes from the way we think. So if we can think about our, all these things that we see as compulsions, as necessities, that our body throws up for us, that it volunteers, and we can just step back from it. So the Buddha found that what we can do is to, well, the Buddha found this, what I think of as a glitch in the firmware. <laughs> we want things to be pleasant. We can't make things pleasant by trying to make them pleasant, but we can by taking all the unpleasantness that we add into the mix off the table. And if we take that off the table, then things get better by the extent to which we do that. So that way, who needs free will?
mean, the issue of free will, it, free will is just the experience we have when we act. It's uh, what happened a fifth of a second before. I choose to do this. I, you know, I choose to be hungry. I choose to think this thought. You know, you sit down and you try to follow your breath, what happens? Thoughts show up. And you can't stop them because they show, they're coming a fifth of a second before you. They're presented to your conscious awareness. So we take ourselves offline, we sit still and we can watch that happen. We take certain behaviors offline through practice, ethical practices, precepts, and, and we can watch those impulses arise in us. There are all kinds, when you understand the mechanics of it, you can devise your own practices, what I've been doing with this monastic eating thing, which that's going to fall this weekend. I'm headed to Reno. <laughs> now, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the rib fest. <laughs> well, my granddaughter's going to be there, so I'm, I'm going to go see her, and I'm sure I'm going to eat ribs. And th that goes on all day, so I know that this practice, <laughs> this practice is not, not long for this world. But, but it's been incredible to watch, because the body is doing this on its own. And, and the learning to recognize those, I mean, I can find myself getting up to head towards the refrigerator before... I think, oh yeah, that banana would be really good, you know, and, and I'm thinking, well, you know, it's just a banana, it's how many calories in a banana? You <laughs> see, the mind does that stuff. It's not a dove bar. It's not a dove bar, <laughs> right. So, oh, there you go. I'm a goner. That reasoning is, is unbeatable. <laughs> yeah. So. Please. Um, I, what I hear is that grasping leads to suffering. Uh huh. Can lead to suffering. And the more you grasp, the more potential for suffering, and the less you grasp. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of um, grasping in terms of how it can lead to relief of suffering with others. Grasping what are you thinking of? Well, let's, let's say, just using an example, someone who's grasping for more love, or recognition, or attention. That doesn't have to do with others. No, well, <laughs> no, I understand. What I'm leaning to is you're grasping for recognition, acknowledgement, attention, uh -huh. to relieve your own right. suffering, but which leads to more suffering. but. Let's just take an example of someone who is grasping for those things mm -hmm. because of something that occurred in childhood or whatever, mm -hmm. and devotes his or her life to helping others, mm -hmm. suffering of others, mm -hmm. physical, emotional, mental, psychological, mm -hmm. whatever, and, and, and does that to try and relieve that grasping. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, others are actually benefiting mm -hmm. from that action. Mm -hmm. Okay, it could be philanthropy, it could be mm -hmm. whatever. How do you reconcile that I would just notion of of not grasping, but there is some benefit 
I'd say it's possible to provide the benefit without the suffering of, I mean, if, if you are looking for recognition, looking for love, looking for attention, looking, then in that moment you are not satisfied. So there's suffering present because of that sense of lack. So you can provide the benefit without having that sense of lack. You don't, it's not necessary to feel guilty and having to make reparations to the world in order to make reparations to the world. The world, there's plenty to do in the world. You don't need to, to motivate it with a feeling of inadequacy and filling the hole of, of uh, uh, you know. I'm just saying you don't need to do that, but the reality is that it can help it, it, Well, it can be a condition that's, that factors in. But I would still say, let's take that off the table and let's suffer less. Continue with the good works, but suffer less. It's possible to do. It's in that grasping, you're never going to do enough. You're never going to do enough. They're never going to be happy enough. Right. They're going to have enough food. And this, this, this life of ours will be unfinished. Boy, Oliver Sacks. And, you know, talked about a life that was finished. I thought, oh my gosh, what an unbelievable luxury. Thank you guys for your attention.